Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you joining us online, good morning to you too. God is so good. It's a song that is in the face of the enemy because he does everything he can to make us doubt the goodness and mercy of God. Mark's Gospel, chapter 8. Mark's Gospel, chapter 8. We will take verses 14 through 26. The title of this morning's message is Believing is Seeing. Of course, that is an adjustment to, Scott, don't stand up until you're told. Now behave. (laughs) You've heard of seeing is believing. Well, we believe believing is seeing. Would you stand for the reading of the Word of God? But not you, Scott. You've already stood. (laughs) Verse 14 is where we will begin through verse 26. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. Also, when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, Seven. So he said to them, How is it you do not understand? Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And When he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored restored, and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house saying, Neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Please be seated. Quite a bit of stuff going on here in this chapter, as is not uncommon in Scripture. On the surface, it can seem quite, you know, ho-hum, a little boring even. But then you begin to dig into it, and it comes to life. When we come to Christ, our, our understanding, everything about it changes. Everything now is filtered through Jesus Christ because the light is on, because of faith. We believe in him, and now we see things different And yes, believing is seeing. Belief allows us to see what we would never have recognized or identified had it not been for this newfound faith in Christ. But he expects us to develop. Christ does not expect us to be born again as a babe in Christ and remain that way. That would be something drastically wrong with us if that's all that happened. He expects development. Well, Satan knows this, and he pours into uh, the equation as much trouble and evil as he can to disrupt our belief and our trusting in God. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he wrote, uh, the church in Ephesus, 
He says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. What'd they do? Well, they did walk as children of light for a while. But by the time we come to the days of John and the revelation of Jesus Christ, they're being rebuked, that church in Ephesus, because they lost their first love. Faith is to get us to see Christ, what he is doing. And out of that flows the riches of our faith. And you have to press into it. It doesn't come naturally. It certainly does not come naturally. It comes spiritually. But that does not mean it comes easily. And so with that brief, brief overview, we look now at verse 14, because there's a lot here. At least I, I hope you, find, you agree with me by the time this is over with this morning. Verse 14, now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. <clears throat> a very slight oversight. It really wasn't a problem. They made it a problem because they read into it. And they read, they read the wrong things into it, as a matter of fact. Verse 15, and he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So where he says, where at least Mark records, then he charged them. Serious and short to the, uh, short and to the point. That's the idea. This is a serious thing. He says, I'm telling you something, and I want you to hold on to what I'm telling you and do something with it. He says, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Well, leaven, of course, is a big part of our biblical education. Its meaning, its symbolism, it is not something that is trivial. It is very important. And again, he, Mark has it prefaced here with Jesus charging them, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, at the Passover of the Jews, you remember that when God was leading his people out of Egypt the night of the Passover, the night that it was instituted. Leaven was to be removed from the home completely. It is an emblem of corruption. And it was not to be in the home when God was to move in judgment upon the enemies of his people. The Passover made a distinction between God's people and those who were not God's people. And those who were trusting in God and those who had no desire to trust in God. Leaven, which is yeast, is what we're talking about in Scripture, is uniformly evil when it is used as a metaphor. I mean, there's nothing evil about the yeast in the bread itself, but when it works its way into Bible teaching, when it comes from the lessons of those prophets and our Lord himself, it is uh, speaking of Corruption, especially corrupt teachings. It also speaks of an outside influence because it is, does not come along with the, with the wheat, with the flour that is made from the wheat. It is introduced. And the influence of the Pharisees was hypocrisy. They were corrupting the way people thought of God and how they should walk in their own lives because their leaders were giving them a corrupted example. These leaders were claiming to be the authority when it came to seeking God, but they themselves had really little interest in adhering to the very things God spoke. Hidden formalism was part of the Pharisees' problem. You know, appearances, traditions, rituals. Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, Luke adds, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. They're wearing 
I'm not trying to tie this into our current times, independent of that, but they were wearing an actor's mask. They were showing you one face, but behind that mask was another person. Moral compromise for the sake of material gain in the name of God. That is how the Pharisees and many others did business then, and many have done down through the centuries to this day. He says here, and the leaven of Herod. So the corruption of the Pharisee, which is primarily hypocrisy, but not limited to, but Herod, politics, those in politics who were not only corrupt to gain for themselves, but they were deadly. They were brutal. By this point, Herod had already had John the Baptist murdered in a very grotesque way, at least by our standards. Some would say it was a merciful act to decapitate someone instantly. If he got it right on the first shot, maybe. Anyway, the leaven of Herod was corrupt also. It was a deadly political element. The Sadducees, another religious group made primarily of aristocrats who were liberal thinkers. They did not really receive the scripture, but they, they had a lot of power, and they were in cahoots with the Herodians, and not identical, but they were there. Matthew remembered Jesus expanding this warning to include the Sadducees, saying that not only were the Pharisees and not only the Herodians, but also the Sadducees were corrupt, Matthew 16. And then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we listen to these words and we say, Lord, what is the point? And the point is, you watch out for those who corrupt faith, who pretend not to corrupt faith. Don't lose this lesson. That's what he's telling them. Remember, he had just left the Pharisees, demanding a sign, insisting on a sign. And he said, no sign's going to be given to you because you guys are fake. And so when he leaves, he says to his disciples here in the boat, you got to watch these guys. They make everyone think they're religious and righteous. You can be religious and not righteous at the same time. It's very easy. If your religion does not make you righteous, what good is your religion? These were corrupting influences spreading through the lives of the people that lived in those days. Here's an interesting verse from Psalm 11. For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. Ha! They're doing that to us today. But it's not new. Satan's really good at this. The angel struggled to get to Daniel because the prince of Persia, the satanic influences, were hindering the work of God in the spiritual realm. The prince of Persia had got his hand on the Persian Empire. And Michael had to come and assist. That's how intense the spiritual warfare was then and is now and has always been and always will be. But that is not so much our concern, and that's why we don't get a lot of it in Scripture. What we do get are the things that we are to be concerned with, our moral behavior before the Lord, obedience to the commandments, that is, righteous behavior and the preaching of the gospel. And this should occupy us. This should take up a lot of our time. These Pharisees, incidentally, they had formulated some sound things in their teaching, but their example was corrupt, and it was corrupt without warning. And that made them like snakes. 
But if leaven, if the introduction of leaven in Scripture speaks of corruption, so does honey speak of those things that are sweet and attractive. Psalm 119, which is a song that celebrates the Scripture, the Word of God. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And so, yeah, the devil is going to look to bring yeast into everything righteous. And we bring the honey. We're not at a disadvantage. It's just an ugly situation. But we're not at a disadvantage. By faith, we fight. And by faith, we win. And when we get to heaven, we'll be surrounded by people who by faith entered in. I, I could rap that. That whole thing rhymed. <laughs> I wouldn't dare. Anyway, <laughs> verse 16. Now we're not heated up yet. And they reasoned among themselves saying, it is because we have no bread. Well, he was referring to the Pharisees' mindset. He's not referring to food. Maybe they were hungry and that was primarily what was on their mind. The disciples thought he was buking them for not bringing enough food for everybody in the boat. An oversight on their part, yeah, but no big deal. I mean, he could just multiply food if there was that, if the situation was dire. He spoke of leaven, and immediately they thought of bread. They saw nothing beyond the natural. Sort of Esau-ish, Esau-esque. Is the, you know, Esau was that character in the Bible who was just about the here and now. He was probably a good friend, Esau. He just wasn't into the things of God. Well, after the miracles, you would think that they would, this would not even be an issue for the Gentiles or for the Jews. He multiplied bread. Why? It's almost insulting for them to think this way. It was never about food. It's about spiritual perception, which they were very dull at, uh, with. And, and Jesus is not going to give them a pass. He's going to call them out on this. He's going to call them out pretty hard, too. Verse 17, Jesus, being aware of it, said, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? He's a little annoyed here. He's going to hit him with nine question marks in a row. That's annoyed. He's not angry. I don't, I don't think that at all. But he is a little annoyed, and he wants them to know that he's annoyed because he's saying to them, this cannot be overlooked. You cannot keep going with me and stay this dull. What a profound lesson. We know what happens when it's ignored. We know what happens when Christians come to Christ, love, oh, I love to Jesus, and they stop. They never grow. Or they may be worse, they become self-righteous, obnoxious little snobs that think they know the Bible better than everybody else, and therefore they are better than everybody else. That won't work either. Spiritual perception. They didn't have it. <clears throat> they were not sensitive to it. They were missing the point. And by this time, having been exposed to this much ministry of Christ. Remember, not only did they see the miracles, they heard the sermons. They had private sessions with him. And he is saying, you guys have unbroken, like the seed that falls, not, not when it comes to salvation, but when it comes to the education, the seeds of knowledge, they're not getting in, they're not penetrating. Because your head's too hard. And the uh, 
they're not going to, after this, they're not going to go, oh, okay, we got it. They're that hard-headed. But they will start making progress. They have been served notice, and they will act on it. It will take time, but they will get it. Just not today. Believing is seeing beneath the surface. And he was a little annoyed, annoyed. And to make this point, let's, let's look at the questions. I'm going to read them without the narrative, just the questions. Uh, verses 17 through 21. Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And when I broke... The seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? How is it you do not understand? See, that's just the words of Christ, the red words in most Bibles. That is just laying it out to them. I don't get it. I don't know why you're not understanding. When I said beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, you should have been right on top of that. Instead, you're thinking about, oh, we don't have any food. Again, I do not think his tone, he was angry at them. Annoyance, you know, there are degrees of being annoyed, and this was a lesser degree, but it was there. I, if I were one of the apostles, I would have worked to make sure that didn't make its way into the Bible. <laughs> I don't want anybody to see he was laying me out like this. Of course, I would not have been one of the apostles if I thought that way. The only, he, Jesus didn't pick me to be an apostle because I wasn't born yet. That's all. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'm glad you laugh and know that I'm not serious. Verse 8. <laughs> I, you know, being so uptight as a Christian that you get nothing but attacking other people is not a virtue. Anyway, you say, well, that was random. No, no, I got some people's head in my head. That's not as random as you think. But none of them are here right now. <laughs> Having eyes, verse 18, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Having eyes, do you not see? Believing is seeing, but it's not automatic. Doing something with the knowledge that Christ is exposed, is given to us, that we are exposed to, whether from his word or from the, the processes of discipleship. And yes, discipleship has never gone out of style. It is still to be practiced. I think some are too obnoxious to find somebody else who's ahead of them in Christ. And, and they just, you know, I, I love that person. I want to be more like that person. I hope that is not the case with most of us. It is good to have someone who is an influence on us for Christ. I think of um, Chuck Smith. I mean, I would not be standing here today were it not for Pastor Chuck Smith. And there, were, there are others, but he is the dominant by far. Uh, my understanding of ministry, that it can match the scripture, uh, comes from such a man as he. Well, Philippians chapter 4, Paul writes to that church. He says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble. What a big word. What a big thought. Nobility. doesn't mean you're a landowner in this context. It means honorable. Whatever things that are, that are honorable. So whatever things are true, that's first. Honorable. Just. 
pure, of good report, if there is anything praiseworthy, worthy, if there is any virtue, meditate on these things. Not that silly transcendental, you know, when they keep asking that question, um, uh, not that stuff. But thinking a matter through, the value of a lesson, how it applies to life. Filing in a way, okay, this may not be me today, but it may be me tomorrow. And that's how you meditate on these things. Paul wrote to Timothy, a pastor, probably in his 30s at this time when Paul wrote to him. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them. That your progress may be evident to all. Well, at this moment, there was no progress evident in these disciples. We don't have any food. I'm not talking about food. (laughs) Banging his fist on the boat. And so, he was letting them know that he expected better of them. That they were spiritually out of shape. And they were to get in shape. That it was not okay to be aloof in the lessons that were to be picked up and gobbled up. Especially on matters of corruption. If they were going to be with him, if they were going to be used by him in ministry, as they were being used as he was preparing them to minister without him around anymore. He needed them to up their game. You cannot do what I need you to do if your head is not in the game. That's what he's telling them. And he does it with a barrage of questions that nobody could answer. In verse 19, he says, When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand How many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said 12. Okay, so they remembered. They remembered the situation. They just couldn't apply it to life. To them, what one of the apostles might have wanted to say, you know, we were just having a bad day collectively. He's referring to verse 19, that first time he multiplied the bread and the fish amongst the Jews when they had their little traveling baskets with them. And then verse 20 Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said seven. And this was, again, uh, when he multiplied the bread and the fish amongst the Gentiles. But that time, they had those utility baskets, the larger ones. And and you couldn't forget these things. They were there. They saw this. They ate the fish and the bread. Verse 21, so he said to them, how is it you you don't get it? How is it you don't understand? I don't understand how you don't understand. Silence. It's quiet. You can't be indifferent about the things of Christ and go boasting how much you love him. I don't, I don't know how you can say, I love the Lord and have no interest in what he has to say. In his word. His miracles, his profound teachings. They were lost on his opponents. They were not supposed to be lost on his people. And there is more to what I am doing, Jesus is saying, than filling bellies with these miracles. There's more to everything that I do. To believe is to see, and to see is to understand for a purpose. Not just to debate and have these, you know, truths and as precious gems, you've got to go out there and do it. How nice it would be if I could just study in my study and life could just leave me alone. And I wouldn't have to deal with la, uh, lust and temptation 
and people on the road and just a, a host of things. Dissatisfaction with life for no reason. Some of you younger ones may not have gotten there yet. Some of you older ones, well, you might be there. You're just dissatisfied with life. You don't even know why. You walk around like, I don't know why I feel so bad. Like, I feel like crying. I could tell you why. Sin is in the world. There's nothing wrong with you. There's something right with you. You're picking it up. What are you going to do with it? Don't go run to somebody and get advice. Run to the scripture. Acts 2.42, apply it. Continue steadfastly in the apostles' teachings. In the communion with the saints. In prayers. In the communion with the Lord. And struggle. Because it's worth it. Do you have a better plan? You don't. We know what happens when Christians deviate from these plans. They can stand and sing and praise the Lord, but then when you start peeling back the layers, you see this heresy within the ranks. Verse 22, and I'm pause there, and I sure hope I don't sound like I think this is the only, the only right church in the world. <laughs> I certainly don't think that. There are, I do not want the Lord to say, by the way, I've got 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to bow. You know what, Elijah, just a side note, commercial here for Elijah. <laughs> when Elijah was, I'm the only righteous one. You know what his problem was that day? He was hungry. <laughs> he really was. <laughs> he ran all the way from, I'm the only one, just kill me. Well, you're not even thinking straight. Because if you wanted to die, you could have just stayed there where Jezebel was. She would have accommodated you. She had henchmen everywhere looking for you. So God feeds him. That's how we know he was hungry. The angel comes, he feeds Elijah. And then Elijah still, after he's full, I'm the only one. And then God says, okay, this is what I need you to do. And then he, before he sends him out the door, he says, oh, by the way, you're not the only one. And who reported this to us? Elijah reports it. No comeback from him after that. These profound lessons, they're, they're wonderful. As long as I don't have to suffer any pain. So verse 22, and he came to Bethsaida. Look at that. We're first, we've done it with the first pa paragraph in 26 minutes. Yeah, man. I'm on my game this morning. Don't mess it up with pride, Ricky. All right. <laughs> then he came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to him, and begged him to touch him. This is the hometown of Peter and Andrew and Philip and maybe others. And it's, it's just to the east side of the Jordan by the headwaters where the flows into the Galilean Sea. And it is a, it's beautiful up in that northern part of Israel. Um, if, if you go to Israel, you, you sort of endure... <laughs> Everything else, you know, south by the Dead Sea with David's cave, or the, uh, in those area, you know, it's, it's desert. Jerusalem's all built up and uh, the suburbs to it are suburbs. Uh, but you go to the north and it's green and it's lush and it's just a whole nother feeling. And this is the area that these men were, were from. Uh, Christ is heading with them up to Caesarea Philippi, which was... Uh, a big Gentile town, and, and we're going to get that in this chapter in one of the future sessions. But uh, anyway, you, you understand the, he's ministered to them. 
They sailed away from the Pharisees. He's rebuked them. They've moved on. And he's heading up to get away from everyone. And that's where this uh, blind man is going to be brought to him. He, he is in Bethsaida where he performs some great miracles. And uh, that's not all. They saw the miracles and they did not believe in Bethsaida. And not, that's not the only place. Uh, I'll, I'll read this verse in a moment. But he's again the saying, seeing is believing. No, it's not. Believing is believing. And you, once you believe, you begin to see. This Bethsaida and Chorazin, for example, proved it. Matthew 11, chapter 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you were done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. It's pretty powerful. You've seen some things and you have just... They didn't badmouth the Lord. They didn't mock him. They did not try to crucify him. They did not send him away. They were just indifferent. It didn't register with them. And so he's saying this kind of behavior meets with a curse. A curse of judgment. They saw and did not believe. But the apostles, they were all part of this. They heard this teaching. And here they come to Bethsaida. And Christ is always teaching. He's always looking to develop them. But he's withdrawing his blessings from Bethsaida. This is critical to the story because he's going to take this person out of the city or the village before he heals him. Because they're under, he's pronounced a judgment on that behavior. And he's not going to offer them anymore. No casting pearl before swine at this point. And so verse 23. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes, he put his hands on him. He asked him if he saw anything. Now, I'm not going to get into the spitting part yet, but I will. And I will try to restrain myself. Because it's just like, this is crazy. Who does this? Well, Jesus did it. But that doesn't mean we're going to do it. And if any of you try to spit in my eye. <laughs> anyway. Uh, we know the verse, and Jesus wept. We're moved by that verse when we, when we come to it in John's gospel, the raising of Lazarus. But I would put this verse right along with it. So Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of town. What, what a beautiful... How come an artist is not catching this? How come we don't see a portrait of this? It's such a beautiful scene. It is that hand. The hand that led this blind man out of town that created and shaped the universe. It, this is the healing hand of Christ. The hand that made gestures when he was teaching. When he would say things like, Behold, a sower went to sow. When he prayed, when he broke the bread, he took them with his hands. He's, it's, it's, I'm not reading too much into this. I am saying to you that this is on purpose by the Holy Spirit language that we can appreciate and adore. The two separate things to appreciate something and then to adore it, to love it. And this same hand took hold of me and those of you who believe and touched your heart and led you out of this world and put you in that glorious light of Jesus Christ because believing, you now see. By faith, you see. 
And as Paul said, when he was converted, I saw the light. I heard the voice. And he began to share that wherever he went. And those same, that same hand holds us with him forever, as long as we want to be held. Pastor, can I lose my salvation? Let me tell you, you, can, you are saved as long as you want to be saved. You, you, I mean, we could just leave it at that. It's just, just not, Jesus said you abide with me. And if you don't abide with me, there's going to be big trouble for you. John's Gospel, chapter 10. No Christian that loves the Lord Jesus Christ should ever worry about their salvation. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. Who could have taken on that day that blind man's hand? Who could have separated those hands from the hands of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? No. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one. First Peter chapter five, chapter one, pardon me, verse five. Speaking of the saints who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Kept by the power of God through faith. Now, you come to Christianity, I'll speak for myself, maybe you share this. You have these great expectations when you get exposed to God's word. The promises, the power of God. How many times, I know I've said this from the pulpit before, you know, come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And I've come to him at times and I could not find rest. All I find is silence and sort of a keep going. And I'm to keep going. So you have a choice in times like that. You become disillusioned or you keep faith and you grow stronger because you're kept by the power of God. And you are his slave and happy to be so. And however he works it out is going to be all right with you. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer. And Satan himself did not believe that. That's why he persecutes. Try to shake us away from Christ. Colossians uh, chapter 1. This is a beautiful verse in the context of what we're saying. Remember, he's got the blind man by the hand. He's leading him out of that city that has a curse on it. He's going to heal this man. We've been led out of, out of the city into, by the hand of Christ also. Paul writes to the Colossians, And you, who were once alienated, the enemies... And enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. When I stand before Jesus Christ, I will be blameless. I will be made holy all by him. I'm just a vessel that's going to receive it. And so are you. So he takes the blind man by the hand. He separates him from the city. And it says, And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him. I'll stop there for a minute. Now my initial reaction, and I think you would share this, is I'm not comfortable with this. I don't like it. My initial reaction is, what is going on here? Because you're picturing this happening. I'm uncomfortable with it because spitting is associated with an insult. In someone's face, it's an ultimate insult. It's a gesture of contempt as a rule. Now, certainly not the case here. Job chapter 17, 
but he has made me a byword of the people, and I have become one in whose face men spit. This is big news. Here you have a man in Job. He's saying, I was once on top of everything. People came to me. I ministered to those who were hurting. And look what it's gotten me. Look at my, what my principle of faith has gotten for me. I hurt my whole body. My wife's turned against me. My children are gone. Men spit in my face. But at the end of it all, when Satan's waiting for Job to then say, I renounce God, it never happens. He's God's man. He can't go anywhere. Again, Job 30, verse 10, they abhor me. They keep far from me. They do not hesitate to spit in my face. Job is enduring this in his faith. He's not become bitter to the point. He's bitter, but he's not bitter to the point of apostasy. Isaiah prophesied they're going to spit in the face of Messiah, the Son of God, the creator of the universe. They're going to spit in his face. That's what's going to happen. And that is what they did. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. He could have killed them all. <laughs> it's just, you know what? This is not going to happen. But he does not. He endures it. And I have a hard time enduring no snacks in the kitchen at midnight. <laughs> He's used saliva before, but this is a little bit more intense. Well, the test cover the two of them. Well, we'll take two of them. John chapter 9, when he said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. In Mark chapter 7, and he took him aside, and we covered this a few weeks ago, from the multitude... And put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. But this is a little different. This is, if you're standing there looking at this, you just saw Christ spit on the man's eyes. I think, and I believe very strongly, here it is. I will trust him. The blind man had to trust him. He had to take, accept his math. No one protests. No one objected. None of the disciples stepped forward and said, well, no, no, you, whoa, you can't be doing this. The blind man says, what? No, he doesn't do that. He remains silent. The disciples remain silent. Everybody in the picture is submitted to whatever it is that Jesus Christ is doing, whatever method he is employing, no matter his methods. Lord, do it to me if that's what you want to do. John chapter 6, verse 68. This is what Jesus preached a sermon that they didn't care for. Ooh, that's never happened since. But Simon, of course, um, in case you missed that, maybe you just uh, like the disciples and don't understand. But I'm kidding. It happens all the time. But Simon Peter answered when everybody else is leaving the Lord. Now, this slowed, slowed us down. Essentially, they're all leaving the church after this. Not all of them, but many of them. Christ has not asked them to come back. That's a pattern that I think all pastors should follow. If someone says, I'm leaving the church, okay, God bless you. I hope it works out well, but I'm not going to ask you to stay or come back. You are a big boy or a big girl, and you are led by the Spirit, so be it. And this is where that uh, pattern comes from. And not only here, but this is the main one. But Simon, when Jesus said, are you guys going to leave too? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. You could do things, Christ, that I don't understand, that I don't get, that I don't like. 
I have nowhere else to go, and I'm not interested in going anywhere else. You have the words. You are the Lord. You reign. And this before they found out about his dying for them the way it happened. Everything just went nuclear after this, after the cross and resurrection. These men were standing with Christ before they understood the cross. We understand the cross. We understand the resurrection. Again, uh, the famous Job, though he slay me, I will trust him. The men can spit in my face, I'll trust God. Man, I can't always do this. And yet, he doesn't defrock me. He tells me, you just keep going. Matthew chapter 3, verse 12, His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Well, he sifted this man out of Bethsaida. He takes him out of the city. He's putting him through this, and there's no objection. And as a result, the man will see. Luke 23, uh, 22, verse 31. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you like wheat. How's he going to do that? By doing, by allowing stuff in my life that I don't get, that seem to be so bizarre, so crazy, you're spitting in my eye. How can you do this? And you say you love me, and you died for me. You're going to spit in my eye. Well, an unbeliever might ask that, but a believer says, "Lord, I've got two eyes. Do the other one too." Satan has asked for you. Notice the emphasis from the Greek into the English. Indeed. Satan has asked, that's emphatic. He says, I'm telling you something, and don't you ever miss this. Satan wants to take you out, Peter, and he's going to get a shot at you. But, and we know the story, Jesus says, but I've prayed for you. You know somebody who Satan is sifting? Then you be praying for them. If Jesus wants to spit in my eyes or whatever else, then may I be very grand about it. I'll even boast about it. In a righteous sort of way. He says here in verse 24, 3 at the bottom, he asked him if he saw anything. Why did he ask that? This is the one that heals people from a distance. Go, your daughter doesn't have a demon anymore. Go, your servant is healed. The fever is gone. And so he, this is the only time. It, it's a progressive healing that we read about. It doesn't mean it was the only time. It's the only one we read about. And what's the point of this? Well, there's precedence, but before I get to the precedence, I, I believe, not I think, I'm not sure, but I am, my conviction that the Lord is saying to us that he keeps his secrets in the healing of souls. He does it his way, and I don't have to understand. He's not going to go outside and sin. He did not sin here. There's no sin that took place. But again, the blind man did not object. The onlookers did not interfere. And that is a lesson for us all. Isaiah warned about this. Isaiah 55. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And he goes on to say, and pass your finding out. If you can understand everything about God, he's not big enough to be God. One of the things that makes him God is he's beyond our total understanding. But we can understand enough, and that's what counts. Seeing is believing enough. That's all I have to do. Well, that's not all that will happen. 
But that is what I have to do. Verse 24, and he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Verse 25, then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Well, the fact that he saw men like trees indicates, as it does in verse 5, where it says his sight was restored, that he had previous, he, was, he could see at one point, and for whatever reason, he had lost his eyesight, and he had become a blind man. And so now, in the process of restoring his sight, we have this dialogue, and only here in Mark's gospel do we have Jesus healing someone in two stages. Well, when you come to this, you have no choice. You have to accept that this is how it is. Sometimes he uses tools, as when he used the clay to spit in, and sometimes he does not. Sometimes he heals instantly, and sometimes he heals progressively. Sometimes he doesn't heal till you get to heaven. You know, the prophet Elisha died of sickness. That great prophet, who did twice as many miracles on record as the great prophet Elijah who went up in a chariot of fire. These are big things we're in the presence of. Again, this is not the first time God healed with tools and in phrases. You say, well, name another one. Naaman. He told him you had dipped seven times in the Jordan. He he needed to use the Jordan, and you do it seven times. If he stopped at six, deal was off. Naaman scoffed at that. But Naaman was a man that was so respected and so loved He was so loved that even a captive Jewish girl, as we would say, turned him on to Elijah. He was a prophet in my land. If we could get Naaman to him, he'd he'd heal him. And that's what happened. And his, you talk about those those of you who are in positions of leadership, or maybe you have a business and you have people that work under you. Naaman was a man that the people under him, they loved him. And so they went to Naaman and said, Naaman, he's just asking you to dip in the Jordan. He's not asking you. I mean, why not? And he, being the general, instead of saying, who are you to tell me? He says, okay, I'll give it a shot. And it's just telling us about a relationship between this man Naaman and the people that were under him. And in those days, a general wielded power. I mean, big power. He wanted you dead, you'd be dead. And nobody would press a charge. How about Hezekiah? That godly king. He had a sickness until death, and Isaiah the prophet says, God says, you're going to die. And he leaves. The prophet leaves. He gets to the courtyard. God says, go back, because Hezekiah is up there boo-hooing. He sends the prophet back and and catches him in the courtyard. He says, okay, go back and tell him he's going to get 15 years. And I'll give you a sign. So what are the, okay, so you're going to live. And then he tells the attendants, put a lump of figs on, on 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 the boil. And Hezekiah lived, progressive, and using a tool. In this case, a lump of figs. Who would have thought figs? (laughs) I would have picked Oreos. (laughs) Anyway, still, regardless of what method he picked, he never failed. And maybe that's part of it, too. Looks like I'm messing up here. Looks like I'm failing. Looks like it's not working, does it? And the blind man is blind no more. Verse 26. Then he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Again, uh, the Lord wanted his privacy because he's heading north. He's getting out of the area. He's uh, giving the disciples the break that they needed that was interrupted on a couple of occasions at the least. 
But here it is, this man is separated, which is our word, uh, sanctified, to be separated. There are two types, there are two stages of separation for the believer, believer of sanctification. There's the instant, which comes with justification. The minute you claim the Lord is your Savior and you renounce all others and He is the one, you admit you're a sinner, He died and rose again for you and is on the throne, you're separated from those who are lost. But then there's the sanctification process of building up the inner man, becoming spiritually strong, and not just being a doorstop. And you say, I don't like to hear that kind of language. That's tough. You know, I, look, when I was in the military, and those drill instructors, which I couldn't stand at times, they had this thing they would do where, you, you, you know, they build you up with honor. This is the core and all that stuff. And then you'd be marching along, and they say, stop, stop. <laughs> and they start insulting you and talking bad about your mother, who they never met. And, and then they would say, no, you, you, you're, you're too whatever to, I can't use the language, to... <laughs> <laughs> and I know I did not almost. So they would say, forward, stumble, trip, and fall. What an insult. You're trying your best, and these guys are chopping you down every chance they get. But it worked. It worked the strangest thing. You worked harder. Fine, I'll show these guys. And the next thing you know, they're not saying that to you anymore. Well, Christ, he comes along, and he says, I'm doing my way. I just need you to submit. Whatever I choose, just submit to it. And so the sanctification process is of stripping us down, building us up. And those who saw believed. And this man believed and saw. Believing is seeing. That, that is part of the preaching, part of the message. Let's pray. Now, Father, I think anybody who has served you long enough has known, come to know, that there are some unconventional methods that you employ and what you want is your servants to submit and remain that way. Submit to you and be a blessing to others. We thank you for these lessons. They are real. They do not fade. And they are critical. And we love and worship you. You're here this morning and as you have been listening, either here in the church or watching or listening online, Maybe you've not ever opened your heart to Christ. Well, you have an opportunity right now. If, as I've been speaking, the Spirit of God has been working on your heart and you know it, comes a time where you have to make the commitment. And now may be that time. You're not promised another chance. Today is the day, says the Bible, harden not your heart. If you would like to open your heart to Christ and belong to Him, be saved from a judgment that is sure to come, then make this confession of faith in earnest. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've missed your commandments. I've fallen short. And I come to you and I ask you to forgive me. No one else has taken my penalty upon themselves as you did on the cross for me. And no one else is worthy to take my sins upon themselves so that I could be free. And no one else rose again from the dead on their own within the Godhead. And so I give my life to you. And I ask you from this point forward that you be not only the one that saves me from judgment, but is also the Lord over my life. And I give it to you right here, right now. Now, if any of you, anyone listening has made this confession this morning, we encourage you strongly to call the church and ask to speak to a pastor.
these things in Jesus' name. Amen.